Welcome to The Brandy Show, Conversations With. The idea for this type of show came from the very concept of podcasts. They're available to anyone at any time since they stay posted on the internet portal indefinitely. Podcasts that are time-sensitive, that deal with issues of the day, are fine. But after a month or so, they can be out of date. Taking advantage of the technology, it made sense to me to create a program podcast that would last. It's as current the day it is posted to six months or a year from now. So I hope you like our series conversations with. Thanks for stopping by. Today's conversation is with Fergus Connolly. By way of introduction, Fergus worked at the University of Michigan for the athletic department with Jim Harbaugh and the football program. He was the performance director and director of operations for a couple of years. He also worked for the San Francisco 49ers. He's worked with world-renowned soccer teams, Australian rules football clubs, NBA franchises, NHL teams, and special forces military operators. He's a specialist in helping people win, perform, and coach at the highest levels with consistent success. His book, 59 Lessons, is a blueprint for anyone who wants to be better to lead better. Born in Ireland, Fergus has a delightful Irish accent, but his message, based on his passion for understanding peak performance, is universal. Enjoy my conversation with Fergus Connolly. Your background is Irish, obviously. Yes. And yet now we're talking about um, soccer and American football and the special forces in your book, 59 Lessons. How did you get from being a young kid in Ireland on the roads that were being patrolled by British soldiers to this book, which is a leadership book, isn't it? Yeah. it's um, Well, there were two reasons I wanted to, to write the book. I wanted to share the lessons, the common lessons across, you know, good leaders, um, across special forces, rugby, soccer, college football, the NFL, NBA. I wanted to share all those lessons and show the similarities because I had that exposure. And secondly, I wanted to thank, really wanted to thank a lot of people who had helped me. When you say you had that exposure, what was your exposure to all this stuff? You're a relatively young man, and then you've talked special forces, you've talked NFL, you've talked collegiate football, you've talked soccer. That's a career for most people. Um, yeah. I, the funny thing is I, I never planned any of this. My father was a woodwork and a construction studies teacher. Um, so growing up in Ireland, I wasn't sure what I wanted to do. But I, I looked at my physical education teachers, and I loved sport, but I didn't... Uh, you know, I saw them pulling on sweatsuits in their 50s, and I thought, I don't want to be that guy. <laughs> I'm looking at my father, who's a wonderful man and had a wonderful upbringing, mom and dad, and he provided, you know, a wonderful house and home for us. And I thought, what better role model? And that's what I went down the path of becoming a construction studies and uh, woodwork teacher. And somewhere, though, in your head, something tweaked that said, I am into this leadership thing. I need to talk to people who are doing these things because that's what really scratches this itch that I have. Because this book is, you go deep with a lot of guys, and it's about the human mind and how to become that leader, what lessons they've told you. And you went out there to find these guys. Yeah, so what what I realized, so, so I go to university, it's a four-year degree. I, you know, you know, every weekend I would spend with my father. So getting through the degree was easy. 
In fact, one of the lectures I taught my father years before. Um, and then I, when I get to university, I find, you know, the sports science department. And I would spend so much time in there that the, some of the just reading and studying because I was playing Gaelic football, Irish football at home. And um, I just, my parents had told me uh, two things, all, you know, never lie, cheat or steal. And if you want something um, badly enough, work hard at it and you'll get it. So I applied that logic to sports. So I just went and studied and read everything. And tell us where you went and, and the relationships you've had to to be able to write this book because you got San Francisco 49ers there. Again, I think your relationship with Jim Harbaugh, who's now yep. a coach at the University of Michigan football team. You worked here at Michigan. You, you have worked with uh, professional soccer teams in Europe. Give us your background and where you've been. What hats have you worn? So I did a master's in manufacturing, advanced manufacturing, and then I did a PhD in computer optimization. But all of those years at university, I would save whatever euros, of course, and I would email or write letters in many cases or get a phone call, f phone number, and I would call the best coaches around and say, look, I've got two weeks vacation at Easter. Um, could I come and, and watch you practice? Could, could I come and, and learn from you? And not one person ever said no. And I, I said, I'll, I'll pay you. Uh, I'll pay you for your Listen, if you can get here, you can come and watch practice. You can come and learn. And what would happen as well is when I would visit like a speed expert, a strength expert or a team, um, I, w I was, because they were so generous with their time, I would give them or offer them anything that I had learned. And, you know, I didn't have a lot to offer, but maybe a little bit of knowledge here and there. But that's what it became. It became then, Fergus, you were visiting this speed coach. Um, you know, I haven't had the chance to go and learn from him. What did you learn? And I would share... And then I, I guess I just got a reputation for being knowledgeable, um, willing to help. And then eventually teams would reach out to me. And I would get, it, it's funny, I would, in some big tournaments, rugby tournaments, I would get an email from one opposition coach, you know, one day and a few days later, get an email from another opposition coach, or maybe they're weeks out from a tournament. Like I remember one wanted recovery, uh, wanted to know certain aspects of recovery, and the other wanted to know about jet lag. And, um, you know, and I, but this, my true passion is in helping good people just do great things. So I love this. How did you have to come along with special forces, SEAL teams? Because in the book, your forward is written by a former Navy SEAL. How did that relationship start? Um, so there were a number of groups around, around the world who had reached out to me as well about um, you know, looking for help in certain certain areas, and again, having an understanding of conflict, it it's not. I'm not in awe of it. I understand, you know, it's it's not like um, uh, how do I put this? You know, it's not as glamorous as people make out. There's a dark side to it, and you have to be able to understand both sides. When you say conflict in the relationship of your book, is you're talking about competing in a contest no i'm talking about war i'm talking about you know death war and there's you know there are obviously bad things good people have to do bad things for uh, us to be able to you know a hundred thousand people to be able to go to the big house and but understanding the nature of it and understanding um you know the balance between um being a sociopathic 
killer and defending something and understanding that whole mindset, um, it's, it's a lot more complex than maybe just you might see in the movies. It, it <clears throat> relates, though. A lot of the lessons kind of relate, in a way, to contests, to sporting events, don't they? Absolutely. And the principles behind preparing an operator to, or a special forces soldier or whatever to go into conflict, the principles behind the person are the exact same, albeit on a far lesser scale in sport. You know, everybody has tactical ability, you know, their, so their experience and where they need to be if you're clearing a room or on a football field. Technical, your skill, so shooting, shooting, communicating and moving or throwing a ball, catching a ball. The physical stuff is the same. And think of physical as just keys in a piano. Some guys need to be strong, some need to be fast, but they need all of those things. And lastly, the psychological component. So emotion, cognitive, um, spiritual. The principles behind all of these high performers are exactly the same. And having had the experience across the different areas, I was able to pull those together to be able to explain to these high performers, you know, the best way and and to take the best lessons from each but also to be able to understand what doesn't transfer you know so some things like if you go and watch practice anywhere i always tell people ask why 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 just don't take the surface level like you might see a drill uh, forget about the drill why are they doing it so why are they doing it like that and why are they so get that, and when you get to that level, that's the bit that transfers. One of the lessons in the book, or at least the comments as I was going through it was, and you talked about preparation, uh, the time to prepare for this operation was yesterday. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> and that's a lesson everybody out there could learn, couldn't they? Yeah, it's very interesting when you go across different sports. Um, in rugby, um, for example, the practice the day before the game the bus will arrive to the stadium or to a practice field the coaches will get off and they'll go over and sit in the stand and talk the team will go into the locker room change and come out the fitness coach will do a quick warm-up and then he walks off and the field is left to the offense and defense and it's run by the captain of the offense and the captain of the defense. They both walk to their groups and they go, okay, we're playing tomorrow. What do you guys want to go through for tomorrow's game? And the coaches say nothing. The game has been handed over to the players the day before the game. And on game day, the coach's input is minimal. In other words, um, you know, the, in some, many sports, the transfer of leadership happens the day before the game so that when something goes wrong in the game, the players are the ones who can to take control. Is that the case that you found in American football? You were working with the 49ers. Uh, you were working with the University of Michigan. Coaches seem to be a little bit more involved on game day than they are in rugby. It's the, it's the inverse. Um, in many cases, they become more involved. Now, Obviously, they're two completely different games, and you can't—you don't have headsets and etc. But there's a balance between ownership on the field and ownership on the sideline, and that's the most important. Like, I mean, good teams, good players take ownership on the field, but how do you prepare for that? 
you know, you must allow them at some stage throughout the week to take ownership. And um, good coaches, you know, even speaking with the old 49ers players, like, I mean, you know, Keena Turner and Guy McIntyre, like I would, I think Keena probably still gets nightmares of me pestering with questions, like what was it like with Bill Walsh? Like what, what was he like? And it was very interesting. He would talk about how Bill Walsh never shouted at a player he would shout at the coach coaching the player but the player got you know knew uh, if if they made a mistake and that that's why when people talk about leadership uh in teams or in business you have to develop leadership you can't take ownership off the field also it's important to win you and i were talking about Mm -hmm. this earlier uh the idea of oh you're you're competing oh you're uh, in the process thank you for participating really doesn't get it because you have said you want this level of competition, this preparing to get young people, especially in organized sport, to get ready for life. And they're going to need to understand there is a winner and there's a loser, isn't there? I I couldn't agree more. Uh, You know, so you listed, you know, whatever accomplishments or whatever way people want to look at it. But... um, I can sit here and list every single failure I had just before that. Like my life has been a series of, you know, stumbles, things I've I've failed at, but you have to sit back and learn from them. I've lost lots of games. I've been fired. I've lost jobs. I've gone for interviews, didn't get them, uh, went for jobs, went for positions. Like, I mean, there's a whole series of failures, but the question in life is, it's not whether you win or lose, it's do you win or learn? And Every loss is an opportunity to learn from that. And you have to be brutally honest with yourself and, you know, draw the conclusions out and move on. And if we, we, we were speaking about this earlier, this is my opinion. The role of sport in life is to prepare young people for the life and for challenges they're going to have. Such a small percentage are ever going to, you know, play professional. So it, it's a it's an opportunity. Losing is not the end. But it's, a, it's a learning opportunity. You know, sit your son down or your daughter down and talk to them. Okay, you lost. So what did you learn from it? But the other really interesting thing I learned from the best coaches were they would treat wins with the same degree of analysis. And they would go, why did we win? And they'd reinforce the positive. And that's very, very important. I was speaking with a parent yesterday, and they were asking me, Okay, but what happens if, uh, you know, my son is on a team that's never winning and they're losing all the game? I said, okay, but the scoreboard in this instance is not the only thing that matters. You have to find small wins. So, for example, if your local basketball team is going to play the Warriors tomorrow, not going to win. So you set, you set small wins, you set targets. You know, you're never going to give Steph Curry an easy shot. Might not stop him, but so set targets. And that's where you get the wins. You have to reinforce. And it's finding that balance. But like you said, life is, life is unfair. So how do you prepare people? How do you prepare kids for that? You talked earlier about Bill Walsh and Keenan Turner and mm-hmm. how he coached the coaches. It reminded me a little bit uh, of Nick Saban's approach. Uh, and I don't know whether you know Nick or you've mm-hmm. probably studied him if, <laughs> if you've written this book. Because his whole deal is... And you've got a quote, you can only compete against yourself. Don't worry about your opponent. And that's, I think, Saban's idea. We are going to be the best we can be. 
And whoever shows up, fine, we'll play them. But if we play the best we can play, if we do the best we can do, we'll probably win. Is that kind of the idea? Absolutely. And there are two reasons that the, your biggest competitor is yourself. One is that um, if you win or lose, you need to have a mindset for how do you get better. So you, if you play to your best each day, and this is not trite, this is serious because the best team in the world, the All Blacks, have the same philosophy. You ha your best is what you're competing against all the time. And we all have strengths and weaknesses, so our job is to play to our strengths and limit our weaknesses. And that's the only way that you improve. But the second reason is, if you're, doesn't matter if you're bottom of the table, and per, but it certainly matters, it doesn't matter whether you're top or bottom, but it really matters if you're the best team. When you go up against a team that you're expected to beat, and there's not a lot of pressure maybe, or the pressure comes off, or there's a lot of hype, you need to set your standard as your best performance. Because again, if you take your eye off the ball, you're going to get beaten, you're going to get blown away. So you, you know, it's, it's not that you ignore the opposition, but you set your own standards. This is where you have a line in the book, best is the enemy of better. Yes. And th yep. well, that's just what you're talking about. Yes, exactly. You need to continuously improve. And you need to be critical of, of yourself, self-critical, but in a healthy way. You know, it can't be obsessive. Um, the other thing I think it's important, and it's in broadcasting more than anything, and I got it out of the book. And uh, I said, now, I learned that a long time ago, but I had to learn it myself, that uh, listening is a key ingredient to success. And actually... Learning to listen is a skill. Now, I never put it that way. I never thought of it that way. Mm -hmm. But I've always said that if you're going to do an interview, you get more done if you listen carefully than you do if you have a list of questions. And I think you've got that in the same context with your lessons about coaching and leadership. You have to learn to listen, and you have to develop that. How do you go about doing that? So... Um, on sidelines, I'm, I'm always, you know, the, the quietest or I'm, you know, whatever, but I'm watching, listening rather than getting involved. Like there's enough emotion in a game, but that's an opportunity to observe, to listen, to pick up clues. The other thing as well is when you're, when you're preparing teams, doesn't matter what the situation is, your, your job is to problem solve and to continuously improve. But the athlete in front of you or the coach, they're going to tell you what the problem is if you give them long enough and if you truly listen. They drop clues. They, you know, they might come to you with a particular issue and after a few minutes sitting, chatting, you know, you figure out what the real underlying issue is. Does this work in the workplace too? Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> but again, you have to, you have to want to help develop the people that you have working for you and take care of them. Like you said, you spoke about Saban earlier and having his coaches. You can't row the boat and, you know, and steer it at the same time. So he's going to steer it, but he's going to watch the guys he has rowing the boat. You also have a thing in there where you talk about, and this is where it gets into the uh, philosophical, if you will. Develop uh, the person, not necessarily the player. Mm -hmm. uh, you talk about building a character within a person and then that person becomes a better player how does that work i mean as a leader you've learned from people who do that right is this from military um both sport and military so 
so let's say you get a five or four star recruit and they come to Michigan. They can play the game. And I learned this because I would end up starting working in sports where I didn't have initially a lot of experience and you have to, to learn the game. But even at the elite end, the guys can play the game. You, you know, I'm not going to teach them anything new. And trust me, there's a lot of coaches who are not going to teach them much new, as much as as great as they think they are. But they, they, they will help improve them. However, they, they can play the game, so it's about tweaking and developing them. But nine times out of ten, what trips them up on the field or for having a long, sustained career is personal development. It's nothing to do with the game. And the way that sport has developed now, particularly here, guys are coming into a system at a younger and younger age, but they don't have the life experience to be able to survive, have a long career. That's the secret. It's about sustained success. But remember, the guy can play the game. This plays into what we just talked about. And again, I, I went through the book and I picked out lines that I thought were great. This one plays into that where you develop the person uh, maybe more than you try to develop the player. And that is people's skills sometimes matter more than intelligence. And we were just talking about that. You're developing a player uh, and character matters. And that's part of the people skills aspect of a coach or of a leader. How do you develop those people skills? Is it trial and error or are you just, are you born with that ability to see someone and know what buttons to push? Well, I think it's, I think it's very, very interesting when you look at, um, you know, the current generation of coaches that we have now, look at the future generation. But when we look back at some of the, the older coaches, many of them were initially teachers or many of them had other careers. So they developed um, people sense, they developed personal skills outside of just the coaching arena. And that gave them a wonderful ability to read people, to understand people, not just players. And that's a, a wonderful skill set. But I think now as you've got many, you know, uh, coaches who are just players perhaps and maybe didn't don't have you know an experience dealing with lots of different psyches or approaches developing that breadth of knowledge so that you can communicate both with the elite player um, the middle tier player and the bottom player like could, do you understand their mindset do you understand the two things you really need to understand uh, in players are their needs and fears needs and fears if you can if you can get an understanding of those then you can help bring you know a certain level of peace and you can put them at ease and then they will thrive nobody nobody learns in a state of fear in the book 59 lessons you talk about a number of people that you've seen employ these methods these things these are the lessons you've learned that you've put on paper who are those folks who are good ones that you've seen that you've witnessed that have answered that question of i'm going to work that these needs and fears are addressed in a player one coach brendan rogers um soccer coach i'll never forget on the first day at liverpool football club he said um i believe everybody has a sticker across their forehead that says make me feel special and this is his first talk to the staff and it kind of blew me away because he wasn't asking what can the person do for me? Or he wasn't looking at it from his perspective. He wanted to know what, how I can make each person feel special. And if you can do that, that person will do anything for you. And later on at the, at the club, um, I was working with Stephen Gerrard, who 
one of the greatest soccer players ever. And uh, I remember I was trying to, this is a, think of LeBron James, you go and you start working with him or Frank Gore or whatever. How do you communicate or how do you gain their trust? My way to him was helping him with the nutrition of his kids. Forget about him for a second. And it was fish oil. I was trying to help get him to take fish oil for inflammation because he was an older player. And so I figured uh, I would start with, uh, you know, fish oil gummy, be gummy bears for his kids and said, hey, Stevie, we've got some of these and we got them by accident, but these would be good for your three daughters. And by the way, actually, it'd be really good for you if you started using fish oil. And that was by taking care of his kids because those that's a, a fear, you know, of his. These guys love their kids. And I genuinely wanted to help him help the kids, the DHA and in fish oil helps brain development, particularly at that young age. And by helping those kids gain his trust and understanding, and that's how I got a multi-million dollar player to take fish oil. <laughs> how about any other coaches that uh, you, you, that are good at this, in general, that you, you kind of check the boxes in these 59 lessons that they've become successful with? Um, I think a lot of the... Uh, I think a lot of the old school rugby coaches are, are very, very good. Uh -huh. um, I think they're very, very good at understanding, you know, understanding the fears of players. That, that's a particularly important thing, you know, understanding their career, helping develop them. I think, you know, Jack Harbaugh, we spoke about Jack earlier. Like, I mean, I would have some fascinating conversations with him in my office. You know, he would come in because the wealth of experience that he's had and seen and the different perspectives... And that's one of the things with young coaches that, you know, I often recommend is don't ever get tied to one coach early on, you know, move, learn, and go to contrasting styles of coaches so that you see the strengths and weaknesses of both. Because sometimes if you go to a successful organization, I've seen the downside of this. If you go to one successful organization, you only learn one style. You don't necessarily see the strengths and weaknesses. Then you go and try and implement it yourself and it doesn't work, you know, you got to see many different styles. See, you, you must be looking at my notes. <laughs> no, because <laughs> no. the next thing was, again, a quote in the book, 59 Lessons, the greatest ability is adaptability. Yes. I, I thought that was absolutely great to take the second half of adaptability and say ability. There's an ability to adapt. Darwin's quote, the strongest will survive, he actually never said that. What he said was, those who can adapt the best will survive. And that's what that quote means. People will say in sport, you know, the greatest ability is availability. It's not. It's adaptability. But even taking a step back, look at life. It's your ability to adapt to adapt challenges, to change. That's what makes you successful. It's not, you know, people talk about the, uh, you know, a fox and a, and a hedgehog where a hedgehog has one defense mechanism, but a fox has many. And that's, that's that ability to adapt and to improve and to continuously get better. One of the things that I really thought was interesting, and I want you to explain this. Uh, in the book, you talked about this, part of your growing up, part of your ability to lead, part of your ability to coach and lead other men goes to the military, and I think to some degree it goes to coaching. Get comfortable being uncomfortable because leaders put people in uncomfortable situations and see how they react to find out if that's the guy they can go to battle with. 
Absolutely. And going back to, you know, one uh, one friend of mine, a commander who was who would train uh, sealed snipers, he would purposely have his men, men fail and purposely put them in situations that they could not succeed so that they could learn about failure, learn how to overcome it, learn how to process it mentally so that they don't, yes, it hurts, but they don't, don't lose complete control. Is that putting somebody into an uncomfortable situation? Absolutely, yes. You will all, listen, it, life isn't a case of where you reach a certain point and it's a bed of roses and it's comfortable. It's always going to be a little bit uncomfortable. You always have to stay, keep your head in a swivel, so to speak, or, or you know, have that ability to adapt. It's, um, there's a fabulous book called Who Moved My Cheese? And uh, I'm going to ruin it now, but it's very short, but it's about two mice. <laughs> one, one mouse gets up in the morning and they're in a maze and they go looking for their cheese. One mouse finds his cheese and he starts to notice it's there all the time. So he gets lazy and he gets puts on a little bit of weight. This other mouse, you know, his cheese is moved all the time. He never gets lazy. Yes, some days it takes him longer, some days it takes shorter. But with the first mouse, when his cheese is moved a little bit, he gets distraught, he gets upset, he gets annoyed. Your cheese is always moving. You're a mouse. You've got a maze. Your cheese is always moving. Don't ever take anything for granted. Be grateful, but don't take anything for granted. Of the 59 lessons you've written in your book, if you had to sit there and go, okay, in the next minute I'm going to tell you what's the most important one, what would it be, Fergus? It would be the last lesson probably. <laughs> <laughs> um, and that lesson is? Um, well, it's, uh, I wrote about the last lesson. I had started writing the book. And, um, you know, I was, had been at Michigan for two years. Um, I think I'd taken eight days vacation in two years. Um, and I'm going to add the last lesson is a very personal one. Well, yeah. And it's also because, well, it's also because, you know, there's no, I didn't write the book to talk about myself. Like, like the book is actually about things I learned from everybody else. The only thing that's listed in the book are my mistakes, you know, mistakes that I made. And this was one, you know, I, I, had been at Michigan for two years. Um, uh, Tony DeFeo had left as director of operations. I was in charge of performance. I took over that, and you know Jim Minnick had left, of course. So there was a, a vacancy or hole there. So now I was doing two jobs, you know, and it's 12, 14, sometimes 16-hour days. I used to have written on my wall 16, 2, and 6. And 16 was the number of hours work I could get done in a day, two hours for travel and eating, and then six hours sleep. That was you know, to try and get as much done as I could. After the bowl game, I said to Jim, Jim, I haven't seen my parents in two years. I, I want to go home and see them for a few days. Is it okay? Yeah, no worries, Fergus. So I go home, and when I come back, sure enough, I see one of my jobs advertised online. So um, so I've gone from seven-day weeks, 16-hour days or whatever, to sitting on my own in my apartment, no job, no, no focus. And I don't reach out to you know I don't reach out to my girlfriend I don't reach out to my family because I don't want to worry them and it's not in my nature to worry I'm the guy who's supposed to look after everybody else so by the time it gets a third week I'm struggling a bit and I don't know what the story is and this is I've never not been working for this long uh, struggling to sleep it gets to stage three days I haven't slept for three nights just this I don't know what's going on and I, I drink to fall asleep. I drink to switch my brain off. And the next morning, I know I'm in trouble. Like I, because 
this is not me and I need to talk like I mean I need to share the pressure so I get into my car and drive uh, about three blocks to my girlfriend's house crash I'm arrested and that that was the that was what happened and um, of course you know I, I was distraught and you know I would I misbehaved, of course, you know, when I was arrested and that. But I, it, um, it was almost like a sense of relief, to be really honest with you, Jim, because just the pressure of four weeks of not going. And listen, what I did was indefensible. There's no excuse. I should have been, I should have reached out. I should have spoken to someone. I should have shared the fact. But again, when you read the book and you look at everything I've done, um, it's... You, I know I have to suffer to, to do things. So suffering, I just thought this is just one more thing. I remember saying to myself, this is just one more thing. I'm going to tough this out because I've toughed out so many other challenges in life. But this one I didn't. This one I couldn't. It was too much. I was trying to take on too much. So um, after after that, you know, I come home and I, I turn my phone off. And three days later, it, it turned on, it was on Thursday, and I had a whole series of text messages from friends, NFL guys, coaches, all around the world, Australia and whatever. And a lot of them were, were military guys I'd worked with, which was uh, touching. And there were CEOs, there were, you know, different people, and, you know, they had heard what had happened. Of course, it makes the news. Nobody knows the background, not that that matters, but... You know, but the people who called were those who knew knew me. The conversation went uh, it went th went three ways. There were three th three stages to almost every one of those conversations. Fergus, what happened? You okay? The second one was, why didn't you call me? You knew you should. You knew you could have. And these were some of these guys were guys I looked up to. These are guys who have achieved far more than I've achieved. And I was going, and in the back of my mind, I'm going, but you're the guys I look up to. You would have tolerated this. And the third one was, okay, Fergus, you don't know this about me, but. And every single one of these people shared with me a story that, or things, challenges they had gone through, where they had cracked, they had broken, but I didn't know about it. It hadn't been made public. Like some, some incredibly well-known people who, names are easily recognizable um told me things that uh, i didn't i didn't know about that they had you know really really tough things and it put what i'd gone through in context but it also showed me that you know even the strongest of us at times you know we we're not going to get through this on our own and i had up until 41 years of age i tackled everything on my own and this one i couldn't the other story about this was the interesting part where the SEAL team, the special team guys, when they heard about this, oh, yeah. they actually called you back. And what they told you uh, was amazing when you related the story to me. Yeah, so a few weeks later, I'm, at, I'm on, the, on the East Coast with a special operations group. And I was asked to come in and give a talk on you know, performance, not on, on psychology. It was on performance, and I was going through how the model because the you know my first book game changer has been used as a manual for a number of special operations groups and i was going through with two or three hundred guys in the group and um 
<laughs> the guy who brought me in, really good guy, but I could have killed him at the moment. <laughs> so I finished the talk and get a round of applause or whatever. And anyway, he comes up and I thought he was going to say thank you and any questions. And he said, hey, Fergus, would you uh, mind sharing the story about your burnout and your DUI? And I looked at him for a minute and I was about to go straight across the stage at him. And he and uh, I said, sure. And so I, I told the story just as I, I told it there. And uh, room went quiet for a bit. And then the guys, the group themselves started speaking and whatever. And I didn't pay any, you know, remarks. I didn't pass, you know. So anyway, we, we leave. I'm back at the hotel that evening and, you know, speak with the guys. And then the next morning I wake up and I've got a text on my phone what time is your flight at from my, my friend? He says, at 4 p.m. He said, can you come back in? The, the officers would like to meet you. Um, they've, they heard about your talk and about your burnout, your, your DUI. So I go back in the next morning, and in a small room, about 20-something hardened special operator, you know, guys in the room, um, these guys are in their forties. Like I mean, they've seen they've seen a lot, and they said, "Fergus, would you mind telling telling us what you told the guys yesterday?" Because we we heard about it. So I told them the whole story, and I told them, you know, I was I was embarrassed telling the story, but I wanted to, you know, they wanted to hear it. I told them. The room went quiet, and this guy I still remember. He told me like he said he was forty three. It still sticks in my uh, in my head, and he said. What happened to you is exactly what happens to us. You thrive under pressure. We thrive under pressure. We look for it. And um, that's what you live for. He said, um, we have the same problems that you have when the pressure has come off. And um, that's when we get our domestic violence or drug or alcohol or issues. And so that led to me helping um, two of the groups put together a model for you know personal and uh, personal development within the groups because and it goes back to the point we spoke about earlier creating a resilient person good person who can then become a great player and putting that model so you know through spoke about it earlier you know i can't I can't give these lessons and not learn from them. But, you know, I, I failed in, in this instance, but it was a learning opportunity. So it gave me, you know, 12 months to, well, in this case, six months to sit down and go through, okay, why did this happen? Why does it happen to me? Why does it happen to other high performers? You know, the difference in mine is it was public, um, but there are, like I said to you, the phone calls I got, were, there's so many other ones that happen, but they never become public. So what? how could I learn? Um, from that and then how could I help these other high-performing groups or other high performers create a model for resilience so that it doesn't happen again or to anybody else last question can you share with us what that model consisted of there, there are two sides to it one is um, and, and this is this is for high performers in general so all of your listeners would appreciate there are there are three types of people in the world we, we a very simple model they're sheep um, who are, you know, the, the young, the old, the infirm, or at different points in our lives where, where we're weak. And then there are wolves, there are bad people. Like, there is evil in the world, and particularly in there, but there are narcissists and sociopaths and whatever that you will deal with. But the majority of us recognize in society that we have to look after one another. We are the sheepdogs. 
but as sheepdogs, you look after the you, the, you know, the sheep, you look after your family, you look after your loved ones, but you must look after yourself first. And that was the mistake that I made. It's the mistake that many of them make. And you need to surround yourself with fellow sheepdogs who you can lean on when things get tough, because that was the learning lesson for me. Even the toughest of us would need to lean on, lean on people. And that was, that was the first thing for them to acknowledge that we all have, we all have limits. And the second part is that there are, we talk about finding, you know, happiness in life. There, there are four things, or contentment, really. You need to know who you are. You need to know your strengths and weaknesses. Because if you, uh, and sometimes your greatest strength can be your greatest weakness. In other words, if your strength is looking after people, sometimes that can be used against you, you can overextend. When you know who you are, you'll be able to find what your purpose is in life. So the, the simple question would be, you know, you would ask someone, who are you? I'm a Navy SEAL. No, you're not. Like, who are you really? I'm a father, I'm a brother. Now, now we're going somewhere. Uh, the third thing is that you need to have a model for life, which is, you know, you need to have either a, a spiritual model or a belief system so that you can understand the world. And the last one is you need to be loved and have someone to love. Those are the four key, the four basic premises for contentment and happiness in life. Know, know your identity, know your purpose have a model or a spiritual model or a belief system and to be loved and to love some, somebody. It's a long way from, it's a long way from the big house, Jim. <laughs> it's a long way from the big house. It's a long, it's a long way from football. It's a long way from coaches. And yet these are all lessons that you've derived basically from athletics, from high performance, right? It's, it's long, amazing. It's, it's a long way from a small village in Ireland. But, but Jim, like, I mean, honestly and genuinely, I'm I'm not special. I've ju just been fortunate to have learned from some wonderful people. And like I said at the beginning, for me, it's about helping good people do great things. The book is called 59 Lessons. Where can people get it? On Amazon. On Amazon is the easiest way to get it, Jim. The author's name is Fergus Connolly. Fergus, thank you. Jim, thank you very much for having me. Thanks for joining us today on Conversations With. Fergus Connolly sure gives us a lot to think about. His book, 59 Lessons, is a roadmap for success, and lessons learned can carry throughout life. Be sure and keep an eye on our Facebook page, Jim Brandstatter 76 or the YouTube channel, The Brandy Show, for more Conversations With.